It is, of course, the uh, anniversary of D-Day today. Uh, 75 years and some amazing videos, by the way, online. I watched a video tonight of a British soldier and German soldier meeting for the first time in 75 years. And it's astonishing to look at these two elderly men sitting down, talking, shaking hands, giving each other a hug. And the German guy said to the British guy, he said, you're not just my friend, you're my brother. And it's just amazing that these two men, at one point in their life, were on the opposite side of a field in trenches, probably shooting at each other. One was a Nazi uh, and one was a British soldier. And here we are 75 years later. Thankfully, we have peace in Europe and uh, they're not fighting anymore. And we're all friends, I hope. Uh, But one woman who did and who survived the Holocaust um, is asking for forgiveness. And she's an advocate for forgiveness and a public speaker. We've had her on the show before and I'm delighted to speak to her again. Ava uh, moses Gore is on the air. Uh, Good evening to you, Ava. Good evening. How are you? I did not ask for forgiveness. I gave forgiveness. I forgave all the Nazis and everybody who hurt me. And that cleared all the anger from my life. Just just to go back a bit, because I, I spoke to you and it was a wonderful experience to speak to you and listen to your story going back about three or four years ago when we spoke to you first, Ava. But for those who don't know your story and haven't heard your story, you were born in 1934 in a tiny village of Ports in Romania. Right. Uh, and yourself and your sister, you were six years of age and your village was occupied by the Hungarian Nazi armed guard. Right, right. It's probably, well, I was going to say it's difficult to remember that, but those kind of memories probably don't go away, do they? What doesn't go away? Well, the memories, I suppose, of when you were that young. I I mean, that is my life. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, it was involved with a lot of big things. So, no, the memories do not go away, and they are okay. They no longer hurt me either. And you were the only Jewish family in that village. What was it like to be the only Jewish family in the village at the time? Well, I didn't know any other way. (laughs) (laughs) So so that was simple. We were Jews and everybody else wasn't. And uh, my father was uh, very rich, a landowner. We owned a lot of land and he worked the land. Mm -hmm. He had other people help him work the land. So it was a simple life. Down to earth, uh, my father left in the summer for work early in the morning and got back late at night. My mother was with us, and we would garden, learn all the uh, things you needed to garden. We had our own plot. It was a simple life, but uh, it got very complicated by the time the Hungarians occupied everything went haywire. And after after four years of that occupation, your family were transported to, um, you know, the regional well, ghetto. Of, yes. And if the, I was thinking about it today, if D-Day would have happened a month earlier, maybe the Nazis wouldn't have kept getting Jews to Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. But we went for, we were taken to Auschwitz in middle of May, and I did not know anything about D-Day because we were in the camp. So here, here you were, t- 10 years of age, and you were kind of thrown right. into this cattle car, so to speak. 
um, right. and transported to Auschwitz, Auschwitz, where everybody knows it was a death camp, and 70 hours without food and water. I mean, that must have been a horrific experience. You didn't even know where you were going. Nobody knew where we were going. We dreaded the thought that we were going to Germany. The Hungarians told us that they are taking us to Hungary to a labor camp. But in the cattle car, the cattle car would go very fast, and it would stop only to refuel. And when it would stop, we would ask for water, because we were unbelievably thirsty. Mm-hmm. And it was the third day we were in the cattle car when we asked for water, and the answer came back in German, which immediately everybody understood. And what, what was it like in that we car? We had been lied to. I mean, well, I mean was, there any, was there any light at all? Could you see? I mean, could you see out through the, the vents of wood? Could you see anything? Particularly for me, that I was so short. Mm-hmm. I was on the bottom of the cattle car, and I could see sometimes some lights through the window, but not very much. Mm-hmm. No. And it was mostly darkness and uh, fast-moving train. And I would say that uh, the lack of knowledge where we were going was very difficult because nobody could see very easily through the window where we were, even if they were tall enough or they stood tall enough to see it. The train was moving too fast for us to notice where we were. But it was the third day we were in the cattle car, and the train stopped, and we asked for water. And the answer came back in German, and every single one of us understood what happened. We have crossed the border into Germany, and that meant that our life was over. And when, when, you, when you eventually arrived, day. when you arrived at the selection platform in Auschwitz, yes. what was the procedure yes. then? I mean, you realized then that your father and two older sisters were gone. I mean, what was the procedure? Well, yes, within, within minutes, they just disappeared from our side. Everything was done again very fast without any explanation. Um, my mother grabbed my hand and my twin sister's hand, hoping that she could hold on to us and she could protect us. I actually physically turned around to try to figure out where we were. And as I turned around, I realized that my father and my two older sisters were gone. A Nazi was running on the selection platform yelling in German, thrilling it with twins. We did not volunteer any information. Suddenly he noticed us and yelled at my mother, all the twins, and my mother yelled back, is that good? And the Nazi said yes, and my mother said yes. At that moment, another Nazi came, pulled my mother to the right, we were pulled to the left, and that was the last time I saw my mother being pulled away. And we became part of a group of little girls. There were 13 sets 
of little girls and one mother. Her name was Mrs. Changeri. She was my mother's friend, and she had daughters three years younger than we were. Our group was taken to a processing center where nobody ever explained anything. That was the strangest thing in the world. But, of course, we were not human beings to them, so they didn't need to explain to us anything. Our clothes were taken away, and we were made to sit on bleachers for the most of the part of the day. Uh, it was late in the afternoon when our processing began, and we were given short haircuts, and our dresses were returned with a huge red oil-painted cross on the back, which I learned later that meant we were part of human experimentation. This was Dr. Joseph Mengel's experimentation. Right. That, that was only experimentation that I knew And what, about. I mean, at 10 years of age, yourself and your sister, this must have been the most horrific, terrifying experience ever to be sitting there I can only imagine what that atmosphere must have been like, to be sitting there in a cold room with all these other children, most of whom you wouldn't have known, and to to know that your mom and your dad were gone, you had nobody to fall back on, no support, knowing that I suppose there was a sense or smell of death in the air, in some sense. It must yes. have been terrifying. It was scary, very scary, but what happened really was so strange the way the mind works. We were, after we were processed, we were tattooed, we were taken to our barracks. It was a, uh, it was a wooden uh, building. Like a a billet, yes. Yeah. Without windows, and it was a horse barn that was, transferred to a barrack. In the middle, there was a brick bench ending in an oven in the front and one in the back with chimneys going through the roof. And uh, on each side of the brick bench was a walkway and then the three-story high wooden bunk beds. We were, Miriam and I were given a bunk bed on the bottom we thought it would be nice to be stretching out and maybe catching a sleep because we did not sleep for four days in the cattle car. We were most, mostly standing. There was no room to sit. And um, and you, you were, of course, selected because you were twins. You were one of 1,500 right. sets of twins, 3,000 right. children who were right. basically experimented on by Dr. Joseph Mengel. Right. And we've right. all read the stories about his experiments. And what I wanted to tell you is that Miriam and I could not sleep, and I saw uh, something crawling on the barrack floor, and I thought they was mice. And when I screamed, mice, mice are here in the barrack, one girl from the top bunk bed said, Silly kids, these are rats, these are not mice, and you better get used to them because they are everywhere. And as I looked carefully, there were tens of them coming out from under the bunk beds. Oh, gosh. It was like an invasion. 
And we got really scared, and I decided to go to the latrine. And Miriam and I went to the latrine as we entered the place on the filthy floor where the corpses of three children. I have never seen anybody dead, but I made a silent pledge as soon as I saw that, that I will do anything and everything within my power to make sure that Miriam and I survive and walk out of this camp alive. And ultimately, that's what I did. And, and when, when, do they, when do they start experimenting on you? At what point? How long were you there? following day. following day. We were taken that following day to an observation lab. Our dresses were removed, and we sat naked for eight hours where every part of my body was measured compared to my twin sister and compared to charts. These experiments were not dangerous, mm. but they were unbelievably demeaning. And, and, and what, what do the experiments consist of? Injections, vaccinations? Um, well, this is what I'm trying to tell you. Mm. Mangala wanted to design, if you want, you want to understand what he wanted, then you will understand the experiment. He wanted to design blue-eyed blondes in multiple numbers. He wanted for every pregnant mother to have not one child but two, so the area and race would increase. That was the reason for the measurement. They wanted to know how close were we to the area design which in every body part they were measuring. Then other days, three other, Monday, Wednesday, Friday was observation, Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, we would be taken to a lab where they would tie both of my arms, they would take a lot of blood from my left arm, and give me a minimum of five injections into my right arm. The content of those injections we didn't know then, nor do I know today. But the rumor was that they were germs, diseases, and drugs, and that's probably correct. Because after those injections, one of those injections, I became very ill. I was between life and death. I was trembling as the August sun was burning my skin. Next visit to the blood lab, they did not tie my arm. They measured my fever, and I was immediately taken to the hospital because I had a very high fever. Next morning, Mangala came in with four doctors. He never examined me. He looked at my fever chart, and then he said to the other doctors, too bad, she's so young, she has two, only two weeks to live. I knew he was right, but I wanted to live, and I made a second silent pledge that I will prove Mangala wrong, I will survive and be reunited with my twin sister. For the following took Two weeks, I was crawling on the barrack floor because I no longer could walk, and I found out somehow that there was a faucet with water at the other end of the barrack. 
I made my way every day to the faucet to drink water because this barrack was not even allocated water. People were brought there to die. After two weeks, my fever broke, and I immediately felt a lot stronger. It took me another three weeks before my fever chart showed normal, and amazingly, I was released and reunited with the other twins. Dying in Auschwitz was very easy. Were you you aware, Ava? Were you aware when you were in that state and you were in that room and you were waiting for your injections and that humiliation and everything that was going on at the time? And I know you were quite young and maybe there wouldn't be that awareness, but were you aware of what was going on around you in Auschwitz? And no, 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 absolutely not. Actually, for most of the time I was in Auschwitz, I thought that the whole world was a big concentration camp and that everybody lived without families, and everybody had no food, no decent place to to lie down and starving to death. That was my understanding of the world. Because malnutrition uh, malnutrition would have been a big problem in Auschwitz because obviously people weren't being fed properly. Right. Well, uh, on August 26, I saw an airplane flying over Auschwitz. It was flying very low. I could see the American flag on one of the wings, and that gave me hope that somebody was trying to free us. The air raids continued, and we would always applaud. Mm -hmm. That was our only hope, that the Americans would defeat the Nazis. I didn't know any other country except Romania, Hungary, and Germany, and the Americans. And the reason I knew about America, we had an aunt in the United States who would send us letters, and the stamp on the envelope was a flag. And that is the reason I knew how the American flag looked. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I wouldn't have known it. But anyway, the... From what was happening, the air raids, we knew that something was going on and the Nazis would be eventually defeated. Just the hope was that would we be alive until the Nazis would be defeated. And uh, I definitely think that D-Day helped the Allied forces, even though we were liberated by the Soviet Union. This was in this was in January was, 1945. You were liberated, right? Yeah. Right. But we, uh, I believe today that if the uh, D-Day wouldn't have occurred, the Allies would. Everybody was trying to get to the camps to liberate it, but it was the Russian army who reached our camp first. And how many of those 3,000 children of the twins that you, you know of survived and actually were liberated? 200, only 200 survived. So the rest all perished, sadly. Right. My so God. it wasn't that easy, even if you were a Mangala twin. Mm-hmm. I definitely had a guardian angel, and I had an unbelievable will to live. And, and when, you, when you were liberated, David, there was just yourself and Miriam... 
you you didn't have anybody else in the world at this stage. Your mom and your dad no, and your we and didn't your didn't have anybody else. They were gone. So what there happened? There were two hundred twins that we were liberated together. And then when I started candles, I was looking for those twins to kind of because I couldn't figure out what was done to us, and there were no books written. Mangala did not have anything about his experiments in Auschwitz in the books that were written about him. And I still don't know what we were injected with. But um, I, I know that my sister was injected with something that stunted the growth of her kidneys. And when she became pregnant, she had severe problems. And ultimately, I donated one of my kidneys in 1987, but the, they gave all the, uh, there were many transplantees at that hospital. Mm-hmm. They have been doing kidney transplants for 10 years. They had 2,000 survivors. All of them were given anti-rejection medication. My sister developed cancerous polyps from the anti-rejection medication. And the doctors ultimately figured out that there was something in her body from the experiment that they couldn't identify. And uh, she died actually 25 years ago today, June 6, 1993. I'm sorry to hear that. And you yourself, you founded Candles, which is uh, Children of Auschwitz, uh, Nazi Deadly Lab, uh, lab Experiments. Survivors. Very well informed you are. Yeah, and I mean, how many of these other children have you managed to locate that would have been there at that time and part of these experiments? I, I succeeded in locating 80 different survivors, maybe a total of 122, ultimately. Mm-hmm. But um, many of them were very, very angry. I was at the beginning angry, too, until much later. And um, they did not remember very much. I am amazed that I remembered as much as I did. But I did. I remember details because I did everything I could do in my power to survive. And these, this is the reason, if you drive to work and you have no problem, it's a routine thing. But if you see a dog running in front of your car, you will remember every detail, because you will have to do something to avoid the dog. So that is a difference. I had to do a lot of things. But isn't it astonishing to, to think at, a, at 10 years of age, that you would have the wherewithal to actually survive something like that, and not just physically survive it, but, I mean, you can only imagine how traumatizing that would be for a 10-year-old to go through something like that. I did not, for instance, look at my pictures that I found at home until 1978. We we, we put one of those pictures up on our Twitter account, the one that you posted today. Mm Mm-hmm. 
I mean, it, it is I astonishing. Think. It's an astonishing story, Ava. And I know today, of course, being the 75th anniversary of D-Day, and I'm sure you've watched the celebrations. When I say celebrations, right. the celebrations that everything is finished, thank you, and it's all over. Though They were on uh, BBC today, and they were on, I'm sure they were on CNN and other places around America as right. well. And it was amazing to watch all those men and women who fought against each other come together and shake each other's hands 75 years later. Well, I have done it much earlier. Mm-hmm. I have done it as, about 50 years after liberation. And the Germans always welcome me with open arms. The Jews are angry with me. And I say to them, you do not have to forgive. You can live with your anger. But I have found one thing. When you survive tragic event in life and you are a victim you are a victim for life unless you do something to liberate yourself and when i came upon the idea of forgiveness i said that is something i can do and let me see how is it going to make me feel i am not hurting anybody and that was important to me and I liked the, the idea that I had power over my life. And I did not have to be that sad and uh, angry victim that I have been before. And when some of those Nazi soldiers, only recently there was one man who was 95 years of age, were brought before the courts for war crimes in Germany, you yourself spoke out at the time and said that you forgave yeah, well, that you forgave I, him. Uh, yeah, I was a doc- at Oscar Groening's trial, mm-hmm. and Oscar Groening actually was willing to testify about what he has done. It was the first time that a Nazi was willing to testify that he was there and he did some things wrong. That to me was very important because... Then the neo-Nazis and the revisionists couldn't say that it was just my imagination because there was a Nazi who was willing to verify and validate my memories. And that was important to me, and I thanked him. Does it upset you when you, I, when you hear the revisionists and the deniers? Does, does that upset right. you? Uh, it makes me a little bit... Uh, angry and I want to talk to them because I want them to to tell me what don't they understand. I was there. I did not make up anything that I am remembering. I did have a mother and a father and I did have two sisters and many other relatives, grandparents. They all disappeared from the face of this earth. Would they like to tell me where did, did they go? And have you have you any idea, Ava, where your mom and your dad and your family are buried? Do you have any idea? I don't think they were buried. I think they were cremated in the ovens. Mm-hmm. I think that the Hungarian transport was the last big transport to arrive in Auschwitz. The selection platform actually was put in for the Hungarian transport. So the selection and the processing of the Jews, 
that the ride of the cattle car would be much faster. And if you go to Auschwitz and you see gas chamber two and three, they are right next to the selection platform. The operation moved very fast. In the Hungarian transport, they kept only 10% survived because the Nazis didn't need anybody for working anymore. They only, they only kept people who were useful, who were useful to them. Right, in some way. Yes. Right. And so because there is no list, there is a list of some survivor or some people who were in the camp. My mother's name or my father's name do not appear anywhere, nor do my sister's names. So they had to be taken directly to the gas chamber because there is no any sign of their existence before. So, so we can only assume they they were part of a mass grave right. Uh, right. for people who were, who had been killed. And uh, you know, have you been back to Auschwitz yourself many times? Oh, many times, and I'm leaving on June twenty second with a. I will have two hundred people. Mm-hmm. Coming and, and what's what's it like for you to, to walk through those gates? You know, obviously a liberated well, woman. What what's it like for you now to walk through those gates? Does it bring all those memories back to you again? Some yes, but I am walking through the gate as a victorious survivor, and I am even not angry with anybody, which is the the thing that forgiveness has done for me. I want some other people to realize that the place exists and hear the story of one survivor. And hopefully I would be able to change their mind about being angry, about becoming a victim, because a victim doesn't do anything good. I have not heard of many victims unless they changed their attitude that they became great humanitarians. Victims are angry and lash out. And, and when, when you and when you when you mentioned that the many people in the Jewish communi- community uh, weren't too pleased at the fact that you were obviously advocating forgiveness, what have they said to you? That I am a traitor to the Jewish cause. I said, well, you don't have to forgive the Nazis. If you like to be a victim, continue to be a victim. I do not like to be a victim, so I forgive them, and therefore I change my own destiny. And I did. Uh, Suddenly, Germans wanted to approach me. They felt guilty. I said, don't feel guilty. You weren't even alive. Try to do with your time some good. And don't ever become a victim or ever angry. If you can forgive people who wronged you, you are on your way to living a better life. That is an astonishing story, Ava, and I'm sure many people listen. And when I I say a story, it it happened. When I say story, that sort of minimizes it somewhat. It did happen. Yeah, You, you control only what you do, right? I cannot control the world, and the world might want to make me a victim again. I hope not. But 
all I can do is my reaction to it. And once I am safe, I don't want to hate anybody because the hatred can destroy the victim. Hatred is not a healthy thing. And that is if we can teach our children. And I tell children as I lecture to them that I want them to think of one thing when they wake up tomorrow that would make the world a better place. And even as young as six years old can think of something and do that and see what we can do with the world. And do you think the world is a better place? What? Do you think? I, I think that mm-hmm. I, can, I have made the world a better place because people who listen to me, I lecture today to 150, and I tell them to stop being victims, forgive people and see how it's going to make them feel. And if they feel better about themselves, they immediately do more positive things than if they feel bad about themselves. And it's up to each one of us to be good to other people, to be kind. It doesn't cost any money to be kind. It doesn't take a big effort to be polite and caring and respectful, and that makes a big difference. Instead of concentrating on how to hate one another, we can concentrate on how to like one another. We can find some good in everybody. I think it's only when you've been through something like, you know, what you've been through, I think it's only then you can start to analyze life in the way that you've analyzed it. Well, you have to analyze life Mm -hmm. because, um, unfortunately, what I see in politicians, they still are at the other throat. And politics, it's important to be in a democracy where you can think for yourself. That's important. But I would say even then, if you've been victimized, take the simple things that you have of forgiveness and see how it's going to help you. Because you are not going to meet up with the people who uh, victimized you anyway. But you can make the people who live around you, who you are interacting with, a think about forgiveness and how it affects them. And that is the role that I'm trying to play. Well, I think, you're, I think you're playing that role excellently. And if people, by the way, want to have a look at more, they can look up Candles, which is Children of Auschwitz yeah. Nazi Deadly Lab Experiment Survivors. And, of course, you named your yeah. sister as Vice President for Israel Survivors, cause you're, or the Israeli Survivors, because your sister, of course, moved to Israel. Um, and it's been a pleasure once again to speak to you, particularly on today, uh, the anniversary of D-Day, 75 years. Yes. And all those yes, men and, and women fought the war. I am going to Auschwitz for the anniversary of the liberation, 75 years to the liberation. And uh, you could go to Auschwitz to to see. I, I hope I will get a chance to speak and tell them really how it was, the liberation itself. It must have been a wonderful day. I, can you remember, just finally before you go, that day, the day that you oh, were liberated sure, by the Russians? 
and and yeah. as you were walking out and and you knew you were walking to your freedom, although somewhat uncertain because of course you were essentially a refugee well, at that I stage. I wasn't walking to freedom. We were in Auschwitz one, and we woke up in the morning, and it was eerily quiet. Since August, there was continuous bombing and the sound of war all around us. This morning I woke up and it was eerily quiet and I asked my twin sister, do you think it's possible that today we might be free? Well, of course she didn't know. I didn't know either. So we went outside and we saw many people. There was a group of people in white camouflage clothes and they were raincoats, and they were smiling from ear to ear. And we approached them, and they gave us chocolate and cookies and hugs. And this happened to be the Soviet army was the first army that reached Auschwitz. And probably the first friendly, so, f- friendly faces you had seen in right. so long. Right. Mm. That must have been a, a wonderful experience for you at that point we after everything you'd been through. And we were alive, and that's all I wanted. And uh, Miriam and I were alive, and we, we would walk out of this camp. Right. Look, I have to say, right, I think it's amazing to listen to, to you, and it's an ama- you're an amazing woman. I know we've spoken to you before. I have great admiration for you, Ava. And thank you very much well, once again for telling your story. I ask people who hear my interview to try forgiveness in their life, even if the parents didn't love them enough, didn't show them enough care. Remember one thing. It's not easy to be a parent. And there are some people who might be mentally ill. They, I believe that parents always do the best that they know how. It's not always good enough, but I believe that they are trying. And that it all should be good enough for people to go on with their lives instead of in anger, in forgiveness and in hope. And that's a nice way to finish the interview. Listen, thank you very much indeed, uh, Ava uh, moses Core. Thank you for going on the air and telling that wonderful you, story. You are welcome. Bye-bye. And have a wonderful day. All right, thank you.